The following audio is from the Grove Church Marysville campus. For more information about our church or to listen to previous sermons, check out our website at grove.church. Hey, um, we're in a series called Lights, Camera, Action, as you can see on the screen behind me. Today is part six, and we're going to be in Acts chapter nine. We'll get there here momentarily. Um, I want to mention that Easter is two weeks away, and a couple things you need to know that I want to just bring up real quick. First of all, uh, as you walked in, you should have received a Connect card, and attached to that was a small little card that what we want you to do is just take it with you throughout this week and invite somebody. Maybe, like we talked about, we were praying for different people, for them to come to know Christ. Maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a friend or a family member um, to take this card and honestly invite somebody this week to to our Easter services. It's going to be a great time. The next thing is this, for Easter coming up, it's two weeks away still, but we're also encouraging people. We have two services on Saturday, 4.30 and 6, and then four services on Sunday. If you would consider coming to Saturday, it will definitely help ease the craziness of what's going to happen on Sunday. And so if you're able to bring your family and and come on Saturday, that would be a really, really great thing. And uh, just something to consider, but two weeks away. And then finally, Good Friday. Yes, this year again, we're going to have the Good Friday box available next week for you to enjoy on, uh, and I'll talk more about that next week, on um, Good Friday coming up on April 19th. So just a heads up there. Like I said, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. We've been using a movie theme, as you've probably picked up on already by now in this series, but we're talking about the book of Acts. And Lights, Camera, Action is really understanding that the action in the book of Acts is not just about the activity of the church, but really the activity of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. And and when we talk about this movie side of it and use the movie theme, most of you have heard of what's called a smash hit or a box office smash. And the idea is really just that there are certain movies that when they're made really well or whatever, they can garner awards, Academy Awards or Golden Globes or whatever, but they can also um, make huge money at the box office. And again, most of us are well aware of that fact. But anybody out there maybe want to take a guess on what one of the top five grossing movies of all time is? Anybody have any guesses? Okay, t- somebody said Titanic. Okay. Avatar. Somebody else? Indiana Jones. Okay. Wizard of Oz. Okay. Lord of the Rings. Somebody in last service said Ten Commandments. Not one. Anyway, so... <laughs> I know, Charlton Heston, I don't get it, but okay. What you, Lord of the Rings? Somebody said that? Star Wars? Somebody's looking it up right now going, I'm going to give them all five right now, cheaters. Okay. Let, let me, here's, here's the top five grossing movies of all time. Number five is Jurassic World at $1.7 billion. So much money. Number four, yeah, Chris Pratt, exactly. Um, number four uh, is uh, Avengers Infinity War, and that grossed $2 billion dollars. In third place is Star Wars The Force Awakens at 2.2 billion. And then somebody mentioned Titanic. That's actually number two. And Titanic was just above $2.2 billion. And the number one grossing movie of all time is what somebody guessed over here, Avatar, at $2.8 billion. So um, number one movie. Now, why do I bring that up? Why, why do I even, you know, but the, the parallel that we're trying to make or that I want to make is this. Um, I'm a big believer that our lives are meant to be box office smashes. And I know that's a cheesy way to put it, but the simple idea is this, that you and I are called to live vibrant lives. Paul says it this way in Romans 12, keep your spiritual zeal serving the Lord. That our faith is not meant to be boring. The Bible is not meant to be boring. If the Bible's boring, the problem isn't the Bible. But anyway, so that's just a rip on everybody in the room. Okay, so I'm just kidding. Um, but, but I want to encourage us to consider what do our lives look like? What's going on um, as we live out our lives? What would it look like for your neighbors to be moved by sacrificial love for them? 
or maybe you're a student in here. How would it feel if you walked onto your school campus tomorrow, instead of just kind of showing up and you're tired and disheveled and whatever, what if you showed up with a certain purpose and joy, believing that God had you there for a reason instead of just existing to be there? Or, or, or maybe you work at an office or, or a warehouse or, or you work in a factory or, or a, you know, a, a retail shop. What if you prayerfully walked in knowing that things are going to get thrown your way that could send you sideways and instead of throwing out four-letter words or whatever, what if you responded differently because you looked at where you go through the lens of God has me here, how can I be a light? It changes the trajectory of how you and I live every single day, that we don't just exist, that Sunday's not the day to put on a smiley face and do the church thing, but every single day we're called to live spirit-led, spirit-filled lives. Maybe it's just about being salt and light in the lives of others that they begin to go, what is it about you? And you can tell them what it is because what it is is about Jesus. We're called to be difference makers. What's crazy is as I'm putting together my notes for this message um, this last week, of course, I'm on Facebook at different times and, and I see a post from, from uh, the Marysville Food Bank and the Marysville Food Bank was celebrating the volunteer of the month for the month of March and the volunteer for the month of March was one of our guys at the Grove Church named James who's in a wheelchair every day and who comes every single Sunday and sometimes stays multiple services and he doesn't talk really well, but he got volunteer of the month for going down there and organizing food. Come on, that's awesome. There's tons of examples, but I I think of the Hoot family, Ron and Allison, their family, they've been a light and a pillar in our community and in our church for so long. But she worked at the Marysville YMCA and she is so connected to the community because of that. But she doesn't just exist to get a paycheck. She's there believing that the light of Christ shines through her and it shows all the time. I think of our own mayor who doesn't look through the lens of just existing to have a job and be in a community, but literally through the lens of how can we make a difference in the community because Christ does matter. And our own mayor believes that. So I would encourage you to consider that we're not called to just exist, but to thrive. And that doesn't mean that you have massive power and massive fame and massive riches and do some crazy, amazing, ginormous thing. It means that for each one of us, individually in our context, what does it mean to live vibrantly enough that people around us see the light of Christ? Because it does matter. We're going to talk about fruit here in a little bit and living a spirit-filled, spirit-led life. But I want to give an example from Acts chapter 9, and I'm going to read a little bit here, so bear with me. But in Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 1, it says this, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus, so that if he found anyone there belonging to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed all around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. 
So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind. He didn't eat or drink anything. So he's fasting here, just so you know. Anyway, but he didn't eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests and their, uh, excuse me, from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me to you that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after having taken some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Lord, today, as we walk through this story and we look at Galatians 5, once again, we invite your Holy Spirit to help us understand what's going on and why this matters to each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Saul, as you take on the book of Acts, you, you, you end the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then you pick up at Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 is Jesus having already pay, paid the price on the cross, died, been buried, rose from the dead, appeared to more than 500. The disciples, here he is again, appearing before them. He says, wait and pray, you'll be filled with the Spirit. Acts chapter 2, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter stands up and says, here's what's going on. This is what God wanted. The prophet Joel said it was going to happen. Shares this amazing message. Thousands are converted that day. As the story continues on in Acts 3 and 4 and 5, they're, they're around preaching the gospel. They're helping disciple. They're uh, you know, establishing leadership within the church. Philip's going around preaching. Stephen stands up and preaches a message. Well, the, the, the chief priests and, and Pharisees and Sadducees and religious leaders are not happy about what's happening because they originally thought if we take care of Jesus, that'll take care of the problem. Well, it doesn't take care of the problem. And so the, the, this way or this group of Christians continues to go out and share the message. The church continues to grow and the heat gets turned up for persecution. Saul is the major persecutor, the main driver of persecution for the church. At the point that Stephen stands up and preaches a message, the crowd gets so angry that they drag him to the side and stone him to death. And it says that Saul was there approving of his death. So in Acts 9 verse 1, when we pick it up, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Saul's a murderer. Saul is so angry, and it's a righteous anger, because he thinks what he's doing is for the sake of the Lord. The problem is, he's missing it by a million miles because he doesn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah. So the Messiah in Acts 9 shows up to him, and, and he says, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul's like, who are you? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. 
And, and, and it's just kind of this moment where a big change is about to happen. And then it shifts to a guy named Ananias. I love how Ananias, he's a disciple, he's seeking the Lord, and the Lord says, I want you to go pray for Saul from Tarsus. And Ananias is like, no chance. The guy's trying to kill Christians. I'm a Christian. I don't need him killing me. And the Lord's like, yeah, but still you're going to go. And he's like, oh, okay. And, and by the way, that's a little bit of us sometimes. Like when the Lord says you need to do something, we're like, yeah, but Lord. It's like, no, no, you need to go, right? Okay, just admit it. We all live that way sometimes. Like, I, I don't want to do this, but God says you need to do it. Another sermon, another day. What I love, though, is he says you need to go. But, but in verse 16, he says, I've shown Saul how, he, how, how much he must suffer for my name. And I want to bring this up because I think this is a big deal and it's a little bit of a pause or sidebar to the message, but I think we really need to challenge our theology of suffering. That there's something about our theology of suffering sometimes that we say, I'm a follower of Christ, and we sometimes assume, hey, because I'm a follower of Christ, everything should be nice and easy. How many of you would admit that at some point or another, you gave your life to faith in Christ, okay, you, you invited Jesus to be the Lord of your life, and since you made that decision, things have gone haywire, things have gone wrong, you've dealt with trials and stuff. Raise your hands, raise them high, like you showered and have deodorant on. Come on, raise them high. Okay, now, no, no, keep your hands up, okay? Now, show your neighbor your arm, no, don't, don't do that. Um, no, no, keep your hands up. I want you to look around. Okay, we have a weird theology sometimes. You can put your hands down. We have a weird theology sometimes as followers of Christ that if I'm a follower of Jesus, if I've given my life to him, things should be easy. That's not true. That's not true. Over and over and over, we're told throughout the New Testament, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, things won't always be easy. In fact, you can read Peter's words who, by the way, when he was crucified, demanded that he be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to die like Jesus. Peter, who wrote in 1 Peter 1, a letter we have to the churches, including us today, said this, in this, meaning the gospel, in this you greatly rejoice, although now, for a little while, you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Then he says, listen, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You greatly rejoice in the message even though you're going to face trials and persecution. James said it this way, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And I've said before, we love the mature and complete part. We don't like the part that it takes to get there. He says, you're going to face, you're going to face persecution. You're going to face people that misunderstand why you're religious, why you got religion. I remember, and for me it's a long time ago now, but as a junior at Marysville Pilchuck High School, having an encounter with Christ that changed me, and I'm serving Jesus, and, and you know, people are going to parties and things are going on, but I'm a different person now. And people begin to whisper about what I'm doing, and people begin to notice that my behavior is different, and people begin to, to, to judge me and, and, and gossip to each other about, oh, he's a holy roller now, and he got religion, and, and, and he's a man of faith now. And I remember people labeling me and talking about me. I remember being called a holy roll. I remember sitting in a friend's car, driving down the road. We were actually driving up Fire Trail Hill one day. And he said, you know, it's cool that, that, that you have faith now, but, but I get concerned when it starts changing how you behave. <laughs> what else is it? 
Our faith is meant to shape how we live. And and when we get to it, that's what we see in the life of Saul. He's a, he's a persecutor, a murderer. He's breathing out murderous threats, believing as a zealot he's doing the right thing, only to be transformed by this encounter with Jesus, and now things are different in a huge, huge way. It says that Ananias goes and, and prays and says, Brother Saul, the Lord who appeared to you told me to come and pray and you'll receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what happens. And all of a sudden, Saul is a changed man. And I love that it says he rose up and was baptized. And here's what I love. I, I was hit up in the lobby a little bit earlier. Hey, baptism's coming up at the end of the month. I'm so excited to get baptized. Last week, two different people came up and said, hey, at the end of the month, baptism's coming up. I'm super excited. One guy goes, are you gonna be there? I'm like, I'm always here. Like, yeah, of course I'm gonna be there and celebrate. But if you're in this room and you've given your life to faith in Christ but have yet to be water baptized since then, you need to take that step and we're gonna celebrate with you. Get baptized. It's, a, it's symbolically laying your old life down in, in the watery grave of baptism and coming up celebrating newness in Christ. It's an outward declaration of the inward transformation that Christ has done. And if you need to take that step when you leave here today, go out to the hub and sign up. And man, we're gonna party on April 28th. It's gonna be fun. See, some of you thought it was Baptism Sunday because we started with that song, I Ran Out of the Grave. You're like, oh, it's baptism. No, it wasn't, it's coming. But you need to take that step. Saul is a changed man, but I want you to understand this. That is what the Holy Spirit does in us. When a friend of mine years ago says, well, it's cool that you got faith, but I get concerned when it changes your behavior. Paul's argument in a moment here is that's what happens. That's his argument when you get to Galatians chapter five, but, but, but people marvel at, at what goes on in the life of Saul. He goes from murdering Christians to literally verse 20, at Acts nine, verse 20, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God. Can you imagine being there in that moment? Like, wait a minute, that's the murderer. That's the guy who's murdered. What is he doing? Is this for real? You're thinking, this is a ploy. This is a joke. Is this like April Fool's? What is that? But it's for real. And all of a sudden, a guy goes from being a murderer of Christians to honestly, the all-star of the New Testament. I mean, this guy all of a sudden is so passionate that, that and next week we're going to end this series, we're going to be talking about where Paul went and what happened with the gospel and what a huge deal that was. But, but that's because he's a different person now. Paul writes about these changes, and Galatians 5 is, is what I want to talk about for a few minutes here. But remember, he speaks from a place of authority. He talks of vices, and, and he's guilty of half of them when you read the list. Galatians 5, starting at verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. 
But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, and here's his list. This is just one of many. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. What is he saying? He's saying, if you and I are living spirit-surrendered lives, we have no part in these things. He's saying the natural outflow of a spirit-surrendered life is not this. In fact, if these are part of your repertoire, then something is far amiss. That's his point. John Ortberg writes in a book called Soul Keeping, and we've got it on the screen there as a picture, John Ortberg, Soul Keeping. It's a great book, but he writes in here about the danger of how sin begets sin or sin gives birth to sin. It gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And I want to read this. It's quite a bit, but follow along. A single act of dishonesty is not a petty act because it ends up shaping how we view ourselves. We are souls. Everything is connected. That singular deceit determines how far we will allow our standards to slip and still regard ourselves as basically good people. Every act of wrongdoing or sin leads to the greater likelihood of another act. Start as small as you want. Listen to this. Stand in the express lane in the grocery store with too many groceries in your cart. Somebody like, he's following me. Listen. Stand in the express lane in the grocery store with too many groceries in your cart, 17 instead of 12. Try to board a plane when it's not your group's turn. I'm not dishonest. I'm in a hurry. I'm too important to wait my turn. Listen, once you rationalize that first sin, it makes it more likely that you will say it was a traffic when it wasn't the traffic. It makes you more likely to say, I'm sure I sent that email when you know you did not send that email. If you say it often enough, you'll come to remember and believe you sent the email. It makes it more likely that you will cheat then on an expense account or fudge on your resume. Is it any wonder, listen, this is the progression, is it any wonder that workplaces become filled with gossipy, cynical, judgmental people exaggerating their own contributions and minimizing those of others? We tolerate jealousy, sabotage, and greed, but only enough so we can feel good about ourselves because we're good people. Sometimes wrongdoing increases so much it can't be rationalized anymore. When that happens, the common response is not repentance. It's not people saying, oh God, how could this happen? How could I be capable of this? What happens is much more like what happens when you're on a diet. If you cheat moderately for a while, you'll think you're still on the diet. But if somebody blows it a lot, what will often happen is that their mind will say, well, I've already blown it, so I might as well binge and eat anything I want to. When I cross over that line, again, the progression, when I cross over that line where I can't pretend anymore, generally what will happen is that moral behavior will collapse completely. You see this sometimes in scandal-ridden companies or corrupt executives in abusive families, in the nightmare of child molestation, even in the unbelievably scarring words hurled at anyone who does not look or think like us, you reach a point where you know that what you're doing is so wrong, but you don't care anymore. You see it in whole cultures, Rwanda, North Korea, in Stalin's Russia, or the Third Reich. 
Do you know what the name of this effect is in psychological research? And pardon my French, but listen, it's called the what the hell effect. I can't pretend anymore, so I might as well just wholly give in to my urges and gratify what I want regardless of the consequences. What might those consequences be? What the hell? The dynamic is present not just in those bad companies or or high-profile executives or horrible regimes. It's right here in me and in you. What the hell? The soul is able to bear only so much truth. Perhaps it's like having a child. If anyone really knew the cost ahead of time, no one would ever do it. In the same way, if if I were to see the depth of my own self-deceit and self-centeredness, I might give up on the possibility of change before I start. But there is hope. Francis Fenelon reminds us God is merciful, showing us our true hideousness only in proportion to the courage he gives us to bear the sight. And the prophet Jeremiah bears witness. I remember my affliction, the bitterness and the gall. I will remember them and my soul is downcast within me. The soul remembers things that I forget. And I finish with this. Conviction isn't just the pain of getting caught or pain over consequences. It means a God-given, really sober sense of remorse over what I ought to feel remorseful about. It's a God-given ache for goodness. A prodigal son comes to his senses. The mighty King David is humbled by a phrase, thou art the man. A sinful woman aching for forgiveness bathes Jesus' feet with her tears. In the same way the stomach hungers for food, the conscience hungers to be cleansed. It is a God-given ache for goodness. See, the danger of sin in our lives is when we excuse even the smallest of sin just is what it is. It's no big deal. His point is it doesn't stay corralled. It doesn't stay nicely within the box. It spills out and begins to affect many other things. That's oftentimes where you find the person who ends up on the news in a giant scandal. It didn't start with a big scandal. It started with a small crack in their character. It's like a dam and it has a crack in it. The crack doesn't just stay a small little crack. Over time, you're going to deal with something catastrophic. And that's that issue of sin that Paul is saying, listen, if you're living in these ways, be warned. That's not spirit-led living. But then he goes on, and I'm beginning to wrap this up here, but then he goes on to say this, but the fruit of the Spirit, and I've said this so many times over the last year because it's like a mantra, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He says, against such things, there is no law. He's saying there's no parameters to corral these. Let them go. Bear fruit all over. Against such things, there's no law. He's literally saying the evidence of a spirit-filled life is fruitfulness. He says in verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. The evidence of a spirit-filled life are not the gifts in your life. You you can go out and preach an amazing sermon or or speak in tongues as, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. You can go out and do amazing things. But if you don't have the fruit of the Spirit, something is wrong. That's why a pastor can come up and do all kinds of neat things. Oh, what a great guy. And you find there's something weird going on on the side. That's why you hear of these weird scandals that happen all the time in Christendom. It's terrible. And yet the deal is this. It's because what matters more than the gifts is the fruit. 
So can I ask you a simple question? How fruitful are you? How's the fruit in your life? When you hear the, the, go over the fruit of the Spirit and mention all nine of them, do you see those things operating in your life in a way that's helping people see Jesus? Are you growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Because if you're growing with the gifts of the Spirit, but not the fruit, something's going to collide. Something's going to go wrong. You're getting the cart before the horse. We desperately need to look at our lives and the litmus test of, of us being effective is the fruit. The evidence of a spirit-filled life is fruitfulness. It's like the psalmist in, in the very first psalm in the Bible says, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on that law day and night. That person is like a tree planted, there it is, a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever they do prospers. Fruitfulness. That's where Jesus would bring it to this conversation, John 15, where he says, for you and I, if you're a follower of Christ, remain in me. John 15, verse four. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Our connection to the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Jesus is vital every single day that we ought to be bearing fruit, that fruit is falling off, that we're hucking fruit everywhere all day long. Not literally, don't do it literally, you get me in trouble, pastor said. But it's literally that you and I would be fruitful. The picture of, of, of remaining in me is abiding. It, it's that idea that, that you and I are living a spirit-led, a spirit-filled existence all the time, a consciousness of, of the work of Christ being with us at all times. Anybody ever tried to live well aware of, of, of your faith as you're going about your life? You know what happens to me? I try to live that way and, and, and I'm thinking about, man, I just want to Jesus, you're with me and all that stuff. And, and it's easy to lose it like in five seconds. I'm just being honest. I remember a few years ago, I started my year, I was on a drive, I was driving down the road and I literally was going, God, I give this year to you. I'm excited about this year. I believe you got great things. Lord, I just dedicate it to you. It's gonna be awesome. Five seconds later, a dude cuts me off and it's on. I'm not joking. I'm not kidding you. All of a sudden, man, it's rearing up. And like, oh, how dare you? You're going to pay for that move, buddy. And then a little while later, I'm like, what in the world? Jesus, I just dedicate this year. Hey, you stupid, you know what? I'm just being honest. How many of us want to abide in Jesus? And yet find ourselves going, Lord, you're so good. And then seconds later, like, whatever. But it's that reminder our connection to the vine matters. It says that's where the fruit comes from. Are you bearing fruit? It really is as simple as that. Are you bearing fruit? As you look at your life, and maybe you look back at a year, two years, three, whatever. Like I said, I've been in this 27 years almost now as a follower of Christ. As I look back over certain moments, there's mile markers. Hey, I'm becoming more like Jesus. And then moments where I'm like, ah, I'm not becoming more like Jesus. 
but it's being able to go, okay, Lord, I wanna live a spirit-led life because we're called to make a difference in the world that we live in for the sake of Christ. I don't care what your career is. I don't care where you go every day and what goes on. You're called to help people see Jesus through how you live. And it's only gonna happen through living a spirit-led life. God, today, I pray that we can look through the lens of, of, of what Paul says is fruit. And God, it was very personal for him. But as we continue next week, God, it's it very personal about what Paul went through. But God, today, as we look at what he's writing to a church or a region of churches that he cares deeply about, he's really saying, hey, your life ought to be marked by, here's some things. Here's what the fruit should look like. And if we say an apple, that's what an apple looks like. If we say a pear or an orange, most of us have an idea what a pear and an orange looks like. And so for Paul, he gives it to us. Fruit, well, what is that? What does that mean? Well, are you growing in love? Do you carry a joy no matter what goes on? doesn't mean things are always easy, but do you have a deep-seated joy that you're connected to Christ? Do you have peace beyond understanding that in the midst of things that can throw you sideways, is there a sense of holding on to who Christ is, remaining in him, that you don't fly off the handle? Do you walk in a certain patience or are you hot-tempered? Are you kind to others or do you look down your nose? You're better. They're not as good. Measure everybody up, size them up. You walk in goodness and faithfulness, bearing out our faith, not because it's easy, not because we get it all the time, not because it always makes sense and we're doing it right, but are we faithful to the cause and showing others how to live faithful? And do we walk in self-control? That we can all admit, hey, just like Paul says, man, I'm tempted by my flesh to do things I shouldn't do. But I'm surrendered to the spirit. I wanna crucify that flesh. I don't, I don't wanna live by that, making excuses for sin that eventually will lead to my demise. God help us. That we together would live spirit-surrendered lives, spirit-filled lives, the evidence being fruit in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Marysville Sermon Podcast. If you want to keep up with us, like us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit our website at grove.church.